attorneys are trying to invoke all parts of the Constitution that could possibly protect people, the most vulnerable people, refugees and immigrants, from these kinds of executive orders. So they're not only protecting them against discrimination, but just things like due process, um, which applies to everyone on U.S. soil. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Friedman, you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast, and I'm here with our uh, associate editor, Charlotte Silver, uh, staff reporter who uh, has been following um, the news coming out of the new Trump administration and how it, it applies to immigrants and refugees coming in from uh, Muslim-majority countries, the so-called Muslim ban. Uh, Charlotte, you and I were both at protests here in the San Francisco Bay Area over uh, this past weekend at San Francisco International Airport. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw there and, um, you know, your reaction to what's been happening uh, with these executive orders from the Trump administration so far? Um, yeah, well, what I saw at the protests at SFO was an, an organized and focused crowd of protesters with very specific demands. Um, they came to SFO because um, people with valid visas or green cards in some cases were being detained at the border. Um, some were um, being transferred to county jails um, throughout the weekend. Um, so people were going to the airports to um, respond and protest to um, the immediate implementation of Trump's executive order, um, the Muslim, you know, so which we know as the Muslim ban because it um, halts entry and directs the potential deportation of people with valid visas, with legal authorization to be in the U.S., um, but because they have, they are nationals of seven countries, um, are are those those val those documents um, are no longer valid? What I saw was a protest very focused, responding to what appeared to be a very chaotic implementation of the executive order. And on Saturday night, when people were rallying at SFO, um, the first court order issuing a nationwide stay, um, a partial stay on the executive order, was announced. Um, which kind of added more chaos to the mix because it was unclear how that court order was going to be complied with by federal agents with the Customs Border Protection. Um, 
But I also want to make really clear that I think that we should be cautious in in just um, describing the rollout of the executive order and the response to the court orders as chaotic, um, because it kind of gives them too much credit um, with that um, their evidence that they have failed to comply with court orders and evidence that they've continued to detain, in one case deport um, people who have valid authorization to enter the U.S., um, direct violations of the court order that this wasn't intentional. And there's um, there have been several reports um, from around the country, from their airport in D.C., um, Southern California, um, where um, Custom Border Protection agents are telling lawyers, telling Congress people, um, telling activists that they um, are not are specifically not complying with the court order that that is not apply, that, that that is not applying to them. So there are serious reasons to be to be concerned about the Trump administration and um, its federal agencies willing willingness to comply to court orders. And Charlotte, you've been uh, tracking this very carefully the past few days. Uh, yesterday, on Wednesday, you published a, a story. Are U.S. Marshals refusing to enforce court orders against Trump's Muslim ban? Um, tell us a little bit more detail about uh, this interaction between Customs and Border Protection and lawyers who are trying to get them to enforce the stay uh, against this uh, executive order, what that means for people and, and you know, any news, any updates that you've got uh, today on Thursday? Yeah. So um, the court orders of, from New York and Boston, which were nationwide, which were to apply nationwide and were to um, halt any deportation or detention of people coming, people with valid authorization to enter the U.S., even if they are from the seven countries targeted by Trump's EO executive order. In those court orders, the, the judge instructs U.S. marshals to take any steps necessary to make sure the, the orders are complied with. Um, the U.S. marshals are the in sort of enforcement arm of the Judiciary Act. So when this happened, um, you know, it's very, it's very rare that, so U.S. marshals only need to be invoked and be called upon if there's evidence that um, people are in are not in compliance. So when um, the CBP Custom Border Protection in LA actually deported at least one person, maybe more, and here's the big problem: there's no transparency. CBP has refused to release any data on who they've detained or deported. So when the eight federal agents in LA deported someone. Um, it gave serious concern that they were not in compliance with the court order. Another, so another uh, sort of emergency um, session was called and another Southern California judge instructed CBP to um, actually allow, specifically allow that person that they deported to come back and enter the U.S. This man had already traveled, was already in Dubai by the time that, um, that court order came down. So kind of on their own, immigration attorneys went to the U.S. Marshals and brought them the court order so that they would actually be serving them the papers so that to try to trigger U.S. Marshals' action so that they would default to, to start enforcing the court order. Um, and, you know, as you can read in the report, there what they, the, the immigration attorneys were sort of def deferred to different 
people and U.S. Marshals first told them to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, then they told them to go to the Department of Justice. U.S. Marshals did not know how to act. Um, the U.S. Marshals told me, a spokesperson for the U.S. Marshals told me that they were dependent on further instructions from the judge. So this means that um, after the court order was issued, in order for the U.S. US Marshals to act, they need to um, be instructed more specifically from the judge who determines whether or not federal agents are not complying. So the U.S. So the U.S. Marshals can't on their own determine whether or not Customs Border Protection, for example, are not in compliance. They have to wait for the judges to tell them that they're not in compliance and then tell the U.S. Marshals what to do. Um, so that's according to the U.S. Marshal Service. So there have been several... There This week, there are several status hearings to review um, whether or not Customs Border Protection, Department of Homeland Security are in compliance with the court orders. And um, in Virginia, um, the attorney general has actually joined the case against Trump and all of these federal agencies, joined joined um, against them and, and alleged that Trump and DHS are in contempt of court by not abiding by court orders. So this, this is sort of, we're seeing, we're now going down the road of potentially the judge instructing U.S. Marshals to, um, to act to enforce. And so that would be the case in which U.S. Marshals would be enforcing the court orders on CBP at airports. And as you pointed out in your article, there's no, there's no precedent uh, for these kinds of, of moves it, by, by both of these uh, agencies. Exactly. Like we, you know, in the past, um, the president has, you know, called upon U.S. Marshals to enforce court orders. It's not usually the judge who's having to call on U.S. Marshals to enforce it against the executive branch. Charlotte, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the uh, another story, actually, that we published on the Electronic Intifada. Um, Michael Brown wrote uh, a report about Stephen Miller, who's Trump's senior advisor, and his uh, one degree of separation away from Richard Spencer, of course, the, the white supremacist who has been um, uh, whipping up a frenzy of, of racists and, and white nationalists across the country. Um, and, and Miller's central role, he wrote, in authoring the executive order uh, banning entry of uh, banning entry to nationals of seven countries, the, the Muslim ban. You know, in talking with these immigration attorneys and spokespersons for the U.S. government, has there been uh, any discussions about the this like overall atmosphere of um, of this these power grabs by white nationalists and and the behind the scenes maneuvering? of extreme anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, uh, Islamophobic rhetoric being hurled at, at people um, on their way here? Right. Well, um, I think right now attorneys are trying to invoke all sorts of the, all parts of the Constitution that could possibly protect people, the most vulnerable people, refugees and immigrants, um, from these kinds of executive orders. So, um you know, it's not, they're not only protecting them against discrimination, but just things like due process, um, which applies to everyone um, in on US soil, including at the border. Um, and so I think that the Trump administration has clear, clearly tried to 
um, sell and present his executive order as a, a means for increasing national security, which I don't think anyone is buying. Um, and thankfully, um, and you know, if anyone is buying it, you only need to look at um, the very specific statements um, issued by people like um, Giuliani, who has said that the Muslim, the, the executive order was written with the very intent of excluding Muslims, um, but done so in a way that didn't actually identify, you know, the religious demographic of who was being excluded. So that in an attempt to, to make it survive any court challenges. Um, but, you know, it's still very weak. Well, finally, Charlotte, just to kind of tie it back to the Israel factor, um, you also published a story this morning on Thursday about a group of U.S. citizens and Palestinian nationals suing not only uh, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but uh, key members of Donald Trump's administration for perpetrating and enabling war crimes. Can you talk a little bit about this lawsuit and really how it ties in to what we're seeing playing out uh, in in these in airports all across the country and and the the extreme uh, Islamophobic and, and anti Arab rhetoric uh, by the yeah. Trump administration. Well, so this lawsuit it's filed by the same man who's filed um, three other lawsuits against I, I think against um, various um, elements on this uh, financial cycle that sends charitable donations to. Um, settlements and settlers um, in the West Bank. And this latest lawsuit is um, identifying key um, Israeli political leaders, Netanyahu and Avigdor Lieberman and Ehud Barak, um, and also um, the Kushner Family Foundation, which is Jared Kushner's um, family foundation. Jared Kushner is um, Trump's son-in-law, and he's also been appointed as a White House advisor on the Middle East. Um, it also names David Friedman, who is Trump's pick for the as the new U.S. ambassador to Israel. These both of the Kushner's foundation and Friedman have sent millions of dollars. Um, I think the total combined is two billion dollars a year to um, efforts to fund settlement expansion, um, including some of the most violent extremists, extreme settlers um, in the West Bank who inflict. Um, violence, daily violence on Palestinians. Um, so this lawsuit is invoking U.S. tax law and also anti-terrorism law because it's claiming that the settlers that, that are receiving these tax-deductible donations um, are actually committing international terrorism. Um, and so, you know, this is sort of a twist to um, our civil laws um, against terrorism that allows um, there to be civil claims against people who um, are alleged to provide material support to terrorists, which has historically only been used um, against Arab and Muslim groups. So we've seen a lot of persecution of Palestinians um, accused of supporting Hamas and other Palestinian charities like the Holy Land Foundation. They have come under, um, they have come um, under attack through this anti-terrorism act. Um, lately, there has been some attempt for Palestinians to use this um, act, um, this very problematic act, uh, to file suit against those funding Israeli settlers. 
And what's interesting about these lawsuits is that it requires um, the litigants to argue that the settlement activity is distinct from is the Israeli state. So there, so specifically in this latest lawsuit, the Martin McMahon, the lawyer, argues that Netanyahu and Lieberman and Ehud Barak and funding settlers are actually fulfilling their own personal agenda. Um, and they have to do this because um, there are laws that protect um, sovereign nations from civil litigation. And this is, they've repeatedly protected Israeli leaders, which, and, it, and the law basically says that if someone is acting as part of a state policy, then they can't be held, they can't be sued and, and responsible for damages in U.S. courts. We have the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And so that, you know, what this has meant in terms of the Israel-Palestine issue is that Palestinians are vulnerable because they aren't considered a sovereign nation and Israeli leaders are protected. Last year, a law was passed called um, the Justice for State Terrorism Act or something like that. JASTA is the acronym. And it allows, and it was specifically passed with the idea of allowing U.S. victims of 9-11 to sue Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia has also long been shielded from the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Um, so this law passed, and now the lawsuit against Saudi Arabia is going forward. It was uh, This law was vehemently opposed by um, Obama, who actually vetoed it, um, but then Congress overrode his veto for the first and only time during his eight-year presidency. Um, so this was a very political act, um, you know, with a lot of support from constituents, and because of of 9-11 and this, the, the desire to allow people to sue Saudi Arabia as responsible for um, the 9-11 attacks. So this light latest lawsuit invokes, the, invokes JASTA to try and weaken the sovereignty that Netanyahu may claim, but ultimately it does, um, it does it's not relying on JASTA. It's, it's relying more on portraying Israeli settler activity as independent from Israeli policy, which if you read Electronic Intifada, you know, um, is, is not the, does not adhere very closely to the truth since Israeli state policy is very clearly um, set up to colonize Palestinian land. And just in the past week, of course, the Israeli government announced its intention to build uh, thousands of new settlement units in, in the exactly. occupied West Bank. Exactly. All right. Well, we're going to keep watching these stories, of course, very, very carefully. Charlotte Silver, uh, thank you so much for all of your work this week and every week on the Electronic Intifada. And uh, you can read her work on electronicintifada.net. Charlotte Silver, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nora. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, Thank you for listening.